What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hi, yep, it's the Rounding Astronomer, a.k.a. Martin Lund. Um, Just a little uh, piece of advice that um, the podcast here is the latest of my Drystone Radio Astronomy shows on Monday the 26th of June in the year 2023. I think that's right, yeah. Anyway, so that's what's going to be coming after this little introduction here. I hope you enjoy uh, the radio show. Hi, yeah, and uh, welcome to uh, Starbase 37 uh, for the astronomy show this evening. Um, sorry about the news, though. It seems we're having some, uh, well, some serious interference from the Gamma Quadrant there. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Anyway, um, we're here. We're, 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 we're going. That's the main thing. Um, hope everyone is well. Hope everyone's had a very, very nice week. Um, and um, we're on Drystone Radio, 102.103.5 FM. Um, hear us online on drystoneradio.com. There's a, um, a, a DAB radio service in the Bradford area, and you can have a down, uh, um, was it a Drystone Radio app you can download onto your phone as well. So there's loads of places to listen to all the various radio shows on Drystone throughout the week. But now we are uh, at Starbase 37. We are going into outer space. Well, we tend to do it all the time. Mind you, happens that Earth is in outer space as well, so I suppose there's nothing unusual about that. The Astronomy Show, as far as we're aware, is the only regular weekly astronomy show on any radio station in the country. I mean, that's a good plug for uh, community radio, isn't it? Anyway, um, regarding this evening, well, um, it's the usual sort of fair. We'll be having a look at the night sky, although I've got to say, this time of year in in June, there's not a lot of night sky to be seen. It doesn't get dark until really mega late in the evening. Um, we've got the regular features. We've got the A to Z of constellations. We've got the astronomical anniversaries. Uh, we've also got the very large of our look at the history of astronomy in Yorkshire. It's been a 35 million year journey, but we've actually reached the last part of it um, this evening. Uh, and also, of course, we'll be having a look to see what's going on with the astronomical societies in the north of England. But as always, um, because my shows are an investigation, we're going to kick off, as we always do, with Miss Marple, with her investigation. Yes, as I say, I hope everyone's had a fantastic week. Um, certainly, uh, uh, one of the things I've managed to see this week for the first time this year are the noctilucent clouds. More about that a little later on. Um, now, as we, well, let's have a look. It's the 26th of um, June now. Um, so we passed the 21st of June. Now, 21st of, of June is the longest day. Now, for astronomers, that's a great day and a bad day. Um, it's a great day in as much as that from now on in, 
the nights were just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit get darker earlier in the evenings. Not really noticeable until we get through to about the um, back end of July, really. Um, but it, but we are on the way. Um, and, um, you know, as I say, we, for astronomers, we like the dark sky. We all, we love the night, light evenings, you know, barbecues and that sort of stuff as well. Um, but it is a it is a real issue with astronomers and in fact if you go outside to do any um serious observing at the moment um yeah you got to wait till about midnight uh, and then by one o'clock it's starting to get light again uh, so your window of opportunity is really very very small anyway having said that we'll have a little look and see what's around as i say there, there ain't a lot to see because it just isn't dark for very long get into july and it will just start changing a little bit uh, well, at the moment, um, what what can we tell you about uh, uh, about the uh, the back end of the June sky? Well, um, the um, the the plough is it's just past the um, the overhead point now. It's it's very very high in the uh, in the northwest. The the seven stars that form the plough. In fact, I was looking at the plough the other evening. It is actually still quite easy to see when it is dark after midnight. Um, you have got the seven stars, the three stars that form the handle, and the four stars that form the blade. And the two stars furthest from the handle, they're called the pointers. And they're called the pointers because if you draw a line from the right hand star through the left hand star and go across the sky, you'll come across. Um, a star all in its own, which of course is the North Star. Very, very important for navigational purposes. Um, and if you continue the line further across the sky, you will come across the uh, group of stars forming a letter W or a letter M, depending on which way you look at it. That's the constellation of Cassiopeia. And Cassiopeia and the Plough are two groups of stars that astronomers refer to as being circumpolar in the Northern Hemisphere. That means they're always above the horizon. They never set. They get quite low down sometimes but they're always visible which is really good some stars um the more which are lower down in the sky we only see them either in spring summer autumn or winter uh, using the handle of the plow we can curve round and down and it's, it's quite low in the sky now but it's still there the bright star arcturus the brightest star in the constellation of um uh, Bootes de Hertwood. and it's probably the last time i'll relate this story this year so it's, it's a nice story anyway um arcturus means the bear keeper that that's what the name of the star actually means um and uh, it's, it's got a really funky story attached to it and the story goes a bit like this that in 1893 um chicago hosted its first big sort of science fair of chicago in america this is now at the time it was believed that um arcturus was 40 light years away you know it takes like 40 years to reach us from that particular star. In space, astronomers don't use miles to measure distances. They use the speed of light simply because the mile is just really not bit big enough. It's a bit like trying to measure the distance between Britain and Australia, but using millimetres. The scale is just far too small. In space, we use the light year, and light travels very, very quickly. It travels about 186,000 miles per second, and um, in one year, it'll travel about 6 million million miles with one little particle of light. So... We use, um, and as I say, um, we, we simply use the light year. So in one year, it'll travel six million million miles. Um, and uh, the idea was that they had a, have another big science um, industrial exhibition in Chicago in the year eight, in the year nineteen thirty three. Forty years later, now at the time, it was believed that Arcturus was in fact. 
40 light years away. So that is rather clever idea. They would point a big telescope at Arcturus. The light from Arcturus will go down through the telescope tube um, and then be directed to a little um, photocell, uh, which is a little electronic device um, uh, that produces electricity. It would then throw a switch. All the lights for the exhibition would come on. Fantastic. And it worked perfectly well. All the lights come on. And by all accounts, it was an absolutely fantastic exhibition. There was only one problem. And the problem was this. They thought the light had left Arcturus in the year 1893, i.e. 40 uh, light years earlier. But in fact, Arcturus isn't 40 light years away. We know that now. They didn't know it then. It's 37 light years away, which means the light left there in 1896, not 1893. Now, they didn't know that. It didn't actually interfere or spoil the exhibition at all, but... Uh, it's just how knowledge changes over the years, isn't it? Now, um, most of the uh, the spring stars are now pretty well down in the southwest, um, and uh, we, we really can't uh, really can't see them to any great extent. We're now looking towards the southeast when we'll be looking at all the stars that will be uh, in the sky in the summertime, and. Uh, Next week, we'll be having our first look at the, the, the stars in July. This is another little sort of appetizer um, to sort of let you know what's coming up for next week. Um, we'll have the, uh, the Summer Triangle, which is already becoming quite noticeable, uh, rising in the, uh, uh, in the southeast. Um, three stars, Vega in the constellation of Lyra the Lyre, Deneb in the constellation of Sigurd Swan, and Altair in the constellation of Aquila the Eagle. Those three stars form a really quite spectacular triangle of stars in the night sky. And they're all easy to see. They're all very, very bright stars. And we'll be having a good look at those um, when we get into uh, uh, next month. Um, the, uh, the other bright star to mention is that very, very low down in the sky, um, in the south, uh, it's still in the southeast, but it'll be moving more across the south, is the bright red star, Antares, brightest star on the constellation of um, the Scorpion. Now, Antares is, is a big, supergiant star, and it's actually sometimes referred to as the rival of Mars because of its colour. Now, they are the main stars. There are lots of quite nice little constellations we can have a look for, which we will do when we go into the summer months uh, over the next few weeks. Um, but one little penalty we do have to pay in the summertime is that there are a group of really big, large, formless constellations in the southern part of the sky in summertime i'm talking about hercules serpents and ophiuchus they are big constellations they cover large areas of the uh, night sky but sadly there are very very few bright stars there which means uh, navigating your way around is really hard work um, even if we're doing a star party a, a live star party um, uh, you, you know, with people uh, on the field somewhere um, looking at the stars. It really is hard work um, to point out where the various um, features are in these constellations simply because they, they really, it, 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 they're just so faint. There really are very, very few bright stars. To, but we will do our best, and each year we do have a go at trying to navigate those constellations, usually with a conspicuous lack of success. Okay, so that's the... Um, um, the stars. What about the planets? Well, we're still spoiled by Venus, but a 
gotta let you know venus is now getting much lower in the sky um a few weeks back it was very very high up in the uh, southwest it's easy to see now it's dropping down towards the horizon. This is your last real week um, to have a good chance of actually catching it. Venus, the evening star, it is mega, mega bright. By the end of... Uh by the end of the uh, uh, the month, um, it's going to be by the end of the week. It's going to be setting, you know, within an hour of the sun setting as well. So we're talking of what sort of uh, sunsets? What's it now? About quarter of the ten, that sort of time. So by quarter past ten, it will have been set. So you need to be looking out for that. You know, really, just as soon as it starts getting darkish. Um, so we're looking at sort of um, what sort of half past nine-ish. We just when the sun's getting very low, low in the sky. Look in the southwest, same area of sky where the sun sets for that really bright um, white dot in the sky. Uh, that is Venus. Um, as regards the other planets in the sky, well, Mercury and Mars are still too close to the sun to really be seen, uh, and Jupiter and Saturn are still in the wee small hours. Um, they'll they'll be coming in more into focus as we go into July. So at the moment, um, the planet Venus has still got the uh, the run of the skies to itself as regards. Um, the uh, um, the planets, uh, but really just for the rest of this week, and after that, that's it. It's it's good night Vienna, and that now that one's finished. Um, so then we'll be waiting for the big gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, to start making an appearance as we go through July and August. And I've already alluded to the fact about the noctilucent clouds. The noctilucent clouds, um, we're, we're nicely into the season now. It runs from the back end of May, throughout June, throughout July, and if you're very lucky, just into the very early part of August. So we're almost midway now noctilucent means night shining that's what it's a latin word and they're not meteorological clouds they're not clouds that um, produce rain they are clouds that are very very high in the sky typically maybe 60 miles up and they're little bits of um, micro meteor dust surrounded by ice because it is very very cold up there and the light from the sun which is just below the horizon then shines up hits all these little um, noctilucent clouds then reflects back down again and we see this rather strange bluey grey wispy sort of uh, clouds in the north you've got to be looking in the northern direction um, and um, you, you'll see them in the sky and they're really and I saw some on where are we going um, Saturday night um, first time I've actually seen any this season um, and I have to I'll be perfectly honest now um, I haven't seen that many photographs of them this year uh, now whether that means it's not been a particularly good year for them or whether it's that uh, normally people are posting their pictures I don't really know um, but um, so the first time I've seen them it was an okay display it, I've seen much better but it was an okay display so they're definitely there so what I would suggest is if you do fancy looking for the noctilucent clouds go out again it's a very very late night thing it's a midnight job where you need to be out looking for them um, and you need to be looking towards the north um, to uh, uh, to find them um, the, uh, the the noctilucent clouds as I say um, so they're not real clouds um, in the sense of you know they're not going to produce any rain in it, but they, they really are quite sort of spooky and quite sort of weird when you look at them your, your night when you see them they do look distinctly different from any of the regular sorts of clouds um, that you'll see in the sky. So, uh, yeah, noctilucent, night-shining clouds, 
that's a little task you can do. And one thing about the noctilucent clouds is, whereas if you're in a town or a city, light pollution can come into play, it means you can't see things. It doesn't matter with the noctilucent clouds. You can see them whether you're in the countryside or whether you're in the town as well. So that's really, really good news. Okay, let's have a little bit of music. Let's have a Shadows record, shall we? How about uh, Wonderful Land? Now, I have to report I have had no communication from Honourable Number Two Son in downtown York so far this evening, so I'm not quite sure whether he's listening or whether he's not or whether he's just avoiding me. I don't know. Um, I, I know he's been having some issues with his car, and he's been a bit grumpy about that, but uh, um, it's uh, one of these sort of newer cars, and, uh, well, it, there's been problems. I'm not going to mention the make because it may upset some people, but it's a very, very popular make. Um, but he's been having a few issues with that, but hopefully he'll get that sorted out in the not-too-distant future. Now, um, we're in summer, and as you know, what we try and do is have a look at stars from whichever season we happen to be in, um, and have a chat about them. These are stars that we wouldn't normally talk about. Uh, and uh, for a whole variety of reasons, they might be a bit faint. Um, they uh, uh, they might have been a Nova that uh, are no longer there. Um, but this one here is called a star called F.G. Sagittar. Now, Sagittar is the constellation of the arrow. And it's a summer constellation. And actually, we'll be having a look at this um, as we go into the next few weeks. So we've actually been able to identify where the, this particular constellation is is but this particular star is called fg now when stars have letters designated to them you almost certainly know it's going to be a variable star variable stars are stars that change in brightness and we were very fortunate in yorkshire that uh, in the 1780s john goodrick and edward pickett worked together in the city of york and i when i was curator of astronomy at the yorkshire museum there i christened these two the fathers of variable star astronomy because they really did they were pioneers in our understanding of exactly what's going on in the field of white stars change in brightness they didn't they didn't discover this one at all but um that's where the actual you know a really good starting point for looking at variable stars is anyway um regarding fg sagittar now most stars don't change over a person's lifetime uh though they may vary uh they do not fundamentally change their nature now to learn how stars age we use theory uh, and the theories we sort of string along various kinds of all together. It's therefore interesting to see a star transform itself as it's being observed by astronomers. And this one such star is F.G. Sagittar. Now, the star lies at a distance of about 4,000 light years away. So I say it's a small constellation of Sagittar the Arrow. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When it was first recorded in 1896, it was the center of the planetary nebula Heinz 15. 
Um, and a planetary nebula is a nebula, it's a gaseous looking uh, object in the sky. Um, they're so called because I think it was in 1783, William Herschel, the man who discovered the planet Uranus, um, was um, looking around. He saw this sort of fuzzy patch in the sky, he observed it, and he thought, it looks a bit like a planet, but it's not. It's a nebula. It can't be a planet. But the term stuck, and we still use that term today. What it is, a planetary nebula is a star that's actually going through a process of dying. Our star will go through this process. Um, our star will evolve, and eventually, in the next few billion years' time, all the gases of it will be thrown away into space, pushed away into space, and a, a giant nebula will form, uh, and our star will expand. And in fact, the ultimate end of the Earth, assuming that we don't do anything to it first, is that Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Mars will actually end up inside our sun. So we'll be fried to a crisp. Anyway, to get back to um, this particular star, F.G. Uh, uh, um, Sagittar. Uh, so when it was first seen at the centre of this planetary nebula, it appeared blue. And it was very, very faint, magnitude of 13.6. Now you need quite a big telescope to see that. But then it slowly brightened until in 1969 um, it um, was brighter by four magnitudes, about magnitude 9.6. And in 1991 it was magnitude 9. Um, so a really, really, really good pair of binoculars. You might see a little dot in the sky, but small telescopes you'll see it nice and easy. Now the brightness changes, however, was a bit of a sham because the star was actually cooling. It was changing from a B-class supergiant star in 1955 with a surface temperature of around about 15,000 degrees to a G-class star today with a surface temperature of about 6,500 degrees. Now, as the central star of the planetary nebula, FG Sagittarius was once a huge red giant star uh, like the Myra-type variable stars. The Myra stars, um, Myra was actually the very, very first variable star to be discovered back in 1596 by the Dutch astronomer David Fabricius. He saw a star in the constellation of Cetus, the whale. Um, he made little note of it and it, then it disappeared and it was observed for the next sort of few years appearing and disappearing and astronomers had never seen this sort of thing before. And then what astronomers decided was it was such a spectacular star that they would give it a special name. Uh, the name they give it was Myra and Myra is Latin for wonderful. However, in 1992, the star suddenly faded by nearly five magnitudes, then recovered to around about magnitude 10, so it dropped right down from about magnitude 9 to about magnitude 14, and then it came back up again. Um, F.G. Sagittarius was losing carbon-rich matter that condensed into carbon dust, which will hide the star uh, until that soot or that dust um, clears out the way. Now, interestingly, this is what happens to a small group of variable stars, the R. Corona Borealis stars. Um, and R. Corona Borealis was actually discovered in 1795 by Edward Pickett. And we'll be having a look at this star and a few other stars in Corona Borealis because that is our nominated constellation for this evening as we go through our eight set of constellations. Hey, it kind of sounds like this show's being put together in a sort of pretty professional way, doesn't it? Well, I'll take any credit that's going in this direction. Um, now, astronomers have wondered for many, many years where these weird R. Corona Borealis stars come from. And maybe F.G. Sagittar is giving us an answer. Um, because maybe these two are kind of like fairly close bedmates. And as I say, stars tend to evolve over millions of years. So it's very, very hard for us to sort of work out a precise timeline of what happens to a star in its lifetime but if we can see stars um that are well changing over a period of time that's, that's sort of we can relate to 
then we can start to get a far clearer picture of exactly what is going on in the sky and with the stars. Uh, let's have a little bit more music now, shall we? Let's. Uh, well, t- we're, we're talking about um, uh, we're talking about stars and we're talking about all things uh, um, uh, outer space. How about having an outer space kind of record? How about the carpenters, shall we? With calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Now, with all the excitement of, um, well, I've got the carpenters still rattling around in the background, wait till their spacecraft lands, uh, but with all the excitement of um, the lack of dark skies in June, I forgot, to, I've, I feel I've got to hold my head in shame now. Oh dear, I kind of forgot there is something going on this week, that you, apart from uh, the noctilucent clouds, and that is, there is a meteor shower. Uh, which is it's worthwhile just if you are around having a little look for it. It's the June Booties. Um, it's kind of a combination of Booties, the herdsman. So we was talking about um, Arcturus, which you find by using the handle of the plough, drawing a line round and down. See, it's 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 basically in that sort of area of the sky. Now the the the, the June Booties meteor meteor shower, uh, and I should say a meteor shower is connected with a comet. A comet travels around the sun, leaves a trail of dust behind it. If the Earth happens to cut through that trail of dust, then we see lots of meteors or shooting stars, as people like to call them. But of course, they're not, they're not stars at all. They're little grains of dust burning up in the atmosphere. Now, the comet that this particular uh, meteor shower is connected with is called Comet Pons-Winecki. Um, and um, it was, I think it was discovered, oh, where was it, back in the early part of the 20th century. And um, it's a meteor shower that, doesn't normally produce very many um, brighter meteors, but it does occasionally. Now, the maximum for it, or the the night to go out, would be tomorrow night, Tuesday the 27th of June. Um, And again, you're going to have to be out at the midnight hours, the witching hour, that's when you'll see them. Now, normally, I've got to say, normally it ain't worthwhile looking at because nothing much there, but occasionally... They do spring a surprise. They did that in 1916 and more recently in 1998 when about 100 meteors an hour were being seen. So it does, it, it can spring a surprise. Um, the actual comet, um, Comet Pons, when goes around the sun once every, about once every six and a half years. Um, so if you do happen to be out and around on uh, tomorrow night and perhaps you're taking the dog for a walk uh, very late at night about midnight time uh, or you're coming back from work or you're going to work and you happen to see loads and loads of shooting stars or meteors in the sky you're seeing the June booties coming in so it's worth your while just sort of a um, just just sort of keeping your eyes open for them uh, so I, I got I got so sort of dispirited about how the lack of darkness I completely forgot to mention that one uh, anyway, um, we have a couple of looks, a couple of stories about um, planet Earth. We, we tend to forget Earth is in space and it's just like an ordinary planet. The only reason it's a bit different is a bit um, extraordinary is because we live on it. Um, now, the Earth's rotational pole has shifted from all the groundwater we pumped out. How about that, eh? Uh, Earth is in many ways a water world. Around two-thirds of its surface is covered in water. And the oceans that provide that cover make up 96% of all the water on Earth, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, Glaciers and ice caps make up for another 1.7%. But groundwater is the third most plentiful source of about 1.7% of all water available on the Earth. Now, that's an astonishing 
23.4 million cubic kilometres of stuff means nothing to me. Um, but it does not mean that the total amount of groundwater is unlimited and removing it can have a lasting impact on more than just the people who use it for bathing and for drinking. A new study points to how humans pumping out groundwater impacts the Earth's rotation. The study researchers at Seoul National University in South Korea, I'm assuming that's what it was, found that the Earth is actually more tilted than it would have been if the groundwater remained where it was. Instead, humanity pumped the groundwater out of its resting place to use for their own devices, and then eventually that groundwater ended up in the oceans. Um, over the 17 years of the study, the authors used to estimate that people have pumped out around, get ready for it, 2,150 gigatons of water from the ground. Again, that means nothing to me at all. Um, that is about an increase of 6.2 millimetres increase in the overall sea level throughout the planet. That may not sound very much, but even that tiny amount can have a, a gigantic impact over time. Part of that impact is on the Earth's rotation. The centrifugal force of the Earth's rotation constantly fights against its gravity to throw the water on its surface out into space. Um, and uh, that's what, when you're spinning around, you feel yourself trying to want to fly off somewhere. That, that's a centrifugal force. When the total amount of water on that surface changes by more than two gigatons, that will significantly affect the balance between those two forces, enough that has pushed the Earth's rotation poles to the east by about 80 centimetres. That trend is continuing. Though through the latest data used in the study, which was from 2010, people have continued to pump groundwater at an increasingly frantic pace to try to make up for the loss, the loss of fresh water in some of the most popular parts of the world. In particular, the study notes that uh, Western North America and Northwestern India had the two largest changes in groundwater level. It's unlikely that demand for water resources in those regions has changed dramatically in the last 10 or so years. So it's likely, likely fair to assume that a 4.3 centimetre annual drift of the Earth's rotational pole is still ongoing. Over geological timescales, such a slight drift can have a considerable impact, including dramatic effects on the overall climate of the planet, as well as the balance of salt and fresh water. However, compared to the more immediate impacts of human-induced climate change, these scales won't keep um, most scientists, most climate scientists, up at night. Um, so, um, what would? Um, so, yeah, that's just interesting, isn't it? To, to think all the water is being pumped out from around the ground is actually tipping the poles. Just a little, tiny, little tiny bit. Um, now, earthquakes seem more intense after cosmic ray strikes, scientists say. Now, Earth seems to shake more after intense cosmic radiation that hits its surface, a new study has suggested. The surprising study by a team of Polish researchers analysed 50 years' worth of data and found that the intensity of global seismic activity correlated with an average variation in the intensity of secondary particles created by cosmic radiation with a time lag of around two weeks. Secondary cosmic radiation is produced by the interactions of cosmic rays and the Earth's atmosphere, which suggests that a link between the two phenomena may have nothing to do with the intensity of the arriving cosmic rays, but rather with their ability to breach the Earth's defences. I always keep talking about the Earth's defences, these Van Allen belts around the Earth. They are what protect us. They are mega, mega important to us, so uh, we need to make sure that they are actually all right. Um, if a connection is confirmed, scientists could use it to better predict powerful earthquakes that cause massive structural damage and human casualties, potentially reducing the impact of such natural disasters. 
Now, at first glance, the idea that there is a link between earthquakes and cosmic radiation in its primary form, reaching us mainly from the sun and deep space, may seem strange. Um, however, its physical foundations are fully rational. Um, the Cosmic Ray Extremely Distributed Observatory, or CREDO, um, is an international virtual cosmic ray observatory that collects and processes data from a range of detectors from sophisticated scientific instruments down to the ordinary smartphones of volunteers. Its primary aim is to monitor global changes in the flux of secondary cosmic radiation reaching the surface of our planet that is created in the stratosphere where particles of cosmic radiation collide with the gas molecules and trigger cascades of secondary particles. Scientists think that the strange correlation between cosmic radiation and seismic activity could be explained by the behaviour of eddy currents in the liquid core of our planet, which drive the generation of Earth's magnetic field. This field, also known as the magnetosphere, is responsible for deflecting charged particles which make up cosmic radiation. Uh, the, um, the team reasons that large earthquakes may be associated with disturbances in the flow of matter that drives Earth's dynamo, which also affects the magnetosphere. This would, in turn, affect the ability of primary charged particles to penetrate the um, planet's atmosphere, which would then have an impact on the amount of secondary cosmic radiation particles detected on the planet's surface. Woo! Um, and uh, so, using several um, statistical techniques, the scientists saw that for a period studied, a correlation between changes in the intensity of secondary cosmic radiation and the summed magnitude of all earthquakes with magnitudes greater than or equal to four emerged. Um, this correlation only manifested when cosmic ray data was shifted ahead of the seismic data by 15 days. The fact that the changes in cosmic radiation come before the earth tremors suggests the correlation could be used as a foundation of a future earthquake warning system. What isn't clear from the team's research, however, is whether the apparent correlation could be used to predict where on Earth an earthquake will strike. This is because changes in cosmic ray intensity and earthquakes were only correlated when seismic activity on a global scale was taken into account. The correlation disappeared in the location-specific analysis carried out by Credo. So there you go. Earthquakes could be formed by cosmic rays. My word. It's never-ending, is it? Okay, um, let's um, have a bit more mute. I tell you what, earthquakes can make a bit of a racket, can't they? Um, how about a bit of peace and quiet? How about the sound of silence with uh, Simon and Garfunkel? Yeah, I've been so engrossed in everything that's going on, I forgot to mention where we are. We're at Starbase 37 on Drystone Radio, and you can hear Drystone Radio on 102, 103.5 FM. Hear us online, www.drystoneradio.com. Um, we're on DAB Radio in the Bradford area, and there's also a Drystone Radio app you can download onto your phone. And here on the Astronomy Show, we don't only have local news, national news, international news. We have intergalactic news. Uh, we really do. We, we go where other radio stations fear to go here on the Astronomy Show. And as far as we know, this is the only regular weekly astronomy show on any radio station anywhere in the country. Big, big sort of thumbs up for uh, for community radio there. Now, um, where are we going? Why, why the time? This first hour really is cracking by fairly quickly. Now. Um, let's go into the solar system. As you, yeah, when you're on this sort of show, you can just 
glibly just say, and the next story, we're going to Mercury. Because um, the European um, Space Agency's Bepi Colombo spacecraft um, zoomed within um, 150 miles of um, the planet Mercury recently. And the flyby will help Bepi Colombo spacecraft reduce its speed so it can enter Mercury's orbit in about two and a half years' time. Um, the um, European Space Agency's um, probe will take a close look at its target planet on um, June the 19th, which is what it did, um, and uh, so that was last week, and then uh, we can expect some pretty interesting images. I think some images have really started coming through. I think if you go online, you'll see some of them. Um, the flyby will be Bepi Colombo's third of Mercury, and we'll see the spacecraft whiz past the planet at a super close distance of just 147 miles. That's closer than the probe's two other orbits uh, will circle during the main mission. The main goal of the flyby, however, is not to take stunning close-ups or pictures of Mercury's surface, which of course it's doing anyway, um, but to slow the probe down using Mercury's gravity so it can enter Mercury's orbit in late 2025. Um, the mission uh, team said the spacecraft began with far too much energy because it launched from the Earth, and like our planet, it's orbiting the Sun. To be captured by Mercury, we need to slow it down, and we're using the gravity of Earth, Venus, and Mercury to do just that. The Bepi Colombo mission, a joint project by the European Space Agency and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, is only the third spacecraft in history to, make, to, to take a good look at Mercury. The first two were Mariner 10 and Messenger. Um, although Mercury is on average 10 times closer to the Earth than Jupiter is, it takes just as long to get to the innermost planet as it does to reach the gas giant. That's because a Mercury-bound spacecraft has to constantly break against the powerful gravitational pull of the Sun. Um, to do that, Bepi Colombo, which was launched in 2018, is making carefully calculated flybys of planets along its way while in orbit around the Sun. Um, the probe has previously flown past Mercury twice in October 21, 2021 and in July 2022. Prior to that, the spacecraft also visited Earth once and Venus twice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Um, as Bepi Colombo starts feeding uh, Mercury's gravitational pull, it will um, be travelling at 2.2 um, miles per second with respect to the planet. That's just over half the speed it um, approached during the previous two Mercury flybys. The flyby uh, will uh, further reduce the spacecraft's speed compared to the Sun by uh, 0.5 miles per second. Uh, there will be three further Mercury flybys before the probe is slow enough to be captured by the rocky planet, which is only somewhat larger than the Earth's moon. Um, 
because I'd say Mercury is the smallest planet in the solar system. In September 2024, uh, and also in December 2024, uh, and finally in January 2025, um, the, 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 there will be um, situations where the, the, the spacecraft will be getting ready to go into orbit. <coughs> um, now, some of the data come back from Bevy Columba has already been absolutely fascinating beyond belief. Um, but, um, you know, when it gets into orbit, hopefully it'll be uh, able to send us back far more detail than we've already had so far on the uh, spacecraft. So that is looking really pretty good for uh, um, Bepi Colombo and Mercury. And as always, of course, here on the Astronomy Show, we will keep you bang up to date with things as they are going on there. Um, I tell you what, let's have... I better try and get our last record, didn't we, before we um, go, go for um, the, the 8... I say 8 o'clock news, I'm not quite sure we get an 8 o'clock news, but the 8 o'clock break, I shall say. Um, and uh, what shall we... How about um, Harry Shaping with W-O-L-D? Yeah, here at um, Starbase 37, having our regular weekly stroll along the northern spiral arm of the galaxy. I hope you've had a, a very pleasant week. Um, so certainly it's been, uh, it's been interesting, uh, this sort of, uh, this end of the microphone. Um, lots to tell you about in the second hour. Um, there'll be, we'll be looking at the age of constellations. We've got some more news stories coming up. We've got the very last of our um, look at uh, the history of astronomy in uh, Yorkshire. That's been a 35 million year journey. We've also got the age, we've also got the astronomical and the and also, of course, we're seeing what's happening to the astronomical societies in the north of England. So lots of things uh, um, there to have a look at in the second hour of the show. Um, also, just worthwhile bearing in mind um, that with the... Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure what the weather's going to be doing. The weather this week is looking a little bit sort of indifferent. There's a bit of rain coming in. But that may make it a little bit clearer in the evening. It may sort of um, just clear the area up a little bit. And who knows? Um, so if it is clear tomorrow night, you have a chance with the uh, um, the June booties, the little meteor showers coming in. No guarantee there at all. Um, but um, if you do see lots of meteors or shooting stars appearing in the sky tomorrow night, around about sort of midnight-ish, you can be pretty sure that what you're doing is you're looking at the June um, booties coming in. The remains of Comet Pons Winecki. Yeah, I think that's the right way to pronounce it. You, you very rarely find comets discovered by someone called Smith or Jones. Most of the names of comets are absolutely you know, comets like there's 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 two groups, there's two astronomers, one um one called Mr. Schwarzman and one called Mr. Wachman and they discovered loads of comets and oh you got really, really hard work uh, getting all that sort of sorted out. Anyway, um it's just rapidly now running into eight o'clock and uh, we'll see what happens when we hit the magical hour of eight o'clock uh, and just sort of see what happens there. Whether the news comes through again um, and um, we just blast off for a second now and we'll see what happens in just a moment well um, that was kind of like um, a very sort of strange uh, um, sort of um, well um, little news but it didn't sort of happen did it so uh, anyway um, I think we'll just um, I think we'll just sort of push on I think that's the best thing to do now as long as everything is all going a-okay um let's just get rid of that i think that's all right okay um now in theory everything should be all tickety-boo uh if it's not we'll soon find out um okay right um yeah second hour of the show um and it's sort of thrown me a little bit now but uh this is dryest tone radio 102 103 
102.3.5 FM. You can hear us online on drystoneradio.com. Um, there's um, a DAB radio service in the um, Bradford area. And also, of course, there's uh, an app you can download onto your phone as well. And of course, this is the part of the show where I need to mention that uh, in about an hour's time, Dave will be here with the Soul and Motel Music Show. Fantastic music for Monday evening between 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. We are the Drystone Radio Monday evening dream team. Uh, and I tell you what, you struggle to go anywhere to find a more varied sort of radio. Um, with me, with the astronomy and Dave, with not just the music, but loads of detailed information about the records he's playing as well. So if that's the sort of thing you, you like listening to, this is the sort of radio station you need to be tuned into. This is uh, Drystone Radio. So that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, okay, we're going to kick off the second hour, as we always do kick off, with the Fireball XL5 theme music. And, yeah, well, we've just timed that wrong with the noise and the sounds here at Starbase 37. You can hear some noise in the background. I can only really apologise for that. But the soundproofing usually isn't working too well. Any rate, enough of that. Uh, let's get on with the astronomy. And we're having a look at the A to Z of constellations. Now, if you remember last week, we was talking about the constellation of Corona Australis, the Southern Crown. This week, well, it's Corona Borealis, the Northern Crown. Uh, kind of like makes sense, doesn't it? Um, now, according to legend, uh, myth and legend connected with Corona Borealis, um, the crown was given as a wedding present by Bacchus to Ariadne and was then cast by him into the sky when she died. Um, it consists of an arc of seven fairly faint stars with the exception of Alpha. Uh, although they're quite faint stars, it is quite a nice little distinctive pattern, so it is really very, very easy to see in the sky. It's in the spring sky, and it's not that far away from um, Arcturus either. Um, Alpha, or Alpheca, which means the bright star of the broken ring of stars. Hmm, Don't forget, most of these star names are Arabic in nature, so they are... Um, uh, yeah, when you sometimes the way they're, they're translated to English can be a little bit strange, but that's what it means. It's uh, 75 light years away, and it's magnitude 2.2, which means it's just a tad fainter than the North Star. The only the other brightish star is Beta or Nusakan, which means the two lines of stars is just over 110 light years away. Um, and um, like um, Alpha, it's another A-class star, which means, of course, they're both hotter than the sun, but magnitude 3.7, haze and mist, and you'll struggle to see it. But there are two stars which are really very, very important for such a small constellation, and that is um, our coronavirus, which is what we were talking about earlier on. If you remember, we were talking about the star FG Sagittar, um, and we were saying that it sort of has done some rather strange things over the last few years. Well, our coronavirus which was discovered by Edward Piggott in the city of Bath in the year 1795. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a yellow supergiant, which usually is just at the very, very limit of naked eye visibility. If you've got really good eyesight and you know exactly where to look, you might just see it, but it's got to be mega, mega dark. It. But at unpredictable times, it just fades away to magnitude 14, where you've got a fairly reasonable telescope to see it. It's thought that this is caused by carbon-rich particles building up in the atmosphere, blocking light from the star reaching the Earth. The particles then disappear and the star then brightens up again. That's what um, everything seems seems to be going on there. Um, so there is some sort of suspicion that FG Sagittar is perhaps going into um, the position of an R. Corona Borealis type star. 
The other star to mention, of course, is T Coronavirus, or the Blaze Star. Uh, it went Nova in 1866. Uh, a Nova, as I say, is a system where you have a small white dwarf, a large cool star. The um, the white dwarf pulls gas from the big star onto the small star, and then it forms a disc around it. Then that gas cascades down onto the surface of the white dwarf. It throws a shell of um, gas into space. It brightens up and becomes what medieval astronomers called a nova or a new star. That's what the word nova means. We now know, of course, they're not new stars. They're quite old stars. Um, but what made the blaze star so fascinating was it went to nova in 1946 and again in 19, sorry, in 1866 and again in 1946. Um, we now know that all nova do this. They're all what's referred to as recurrent nova. But T. Corona Borealis was the most famous of the early ones to do it um so it's just uh, um interesting that uh, you know you've got a little constellation and it's got all this sort of notoriety attached to it with these two rather sort of special stars so that really is sort, sort of just sort, sort of quite interesting um let's have a look i tell you what let's have a let's have a little no, we have another, another news story. In fact, a, a latest update on Honourable Number Two Son. Um, he has just come through uh, and said that he is picking me up a okay uh, in downtown York. So things are obviously uh, um, uh, going there. And uh, an absolute quote is, "Yeah, it's all good, my end. Yeah, that's the way the younger ones talk, isn't it? Much is probably the way some of the older ones talk as well." Uh, anyway, very glad to hear that uh, Number Two Son's uh, tuned into the astronomy show. As I know he does each week and uh, he, he he's, he's a little bit of, of, of a critic as well and th- if things don't sound right if things I, I i when i get my weekly phone call i usually get a little a little sort of a post-mortem into anything which was wrong and that and uh, so yeah, i'm sort of kept on i know I'm, i suspect all of the um, radio presenters have people who sort of keep them on their toes and say well this was all right that was not so good and that was darn right yuck anyway um astronomy in yorkshire um, shall we do astronomy in Yorkshire? Yes, we will. Uh, we've reached the end of the line. Um, we've um, got to that point where uh, it will be no more because we've started uh, 35 million years ago with the Silver Pit Crater in uh, a, a, a crater in what is the North Sea now. We've gone through all sorts of prehistoric um, henges and stone um, lines of stones. We worked out why we have Easter. It's down to something which happened in Yorkshire. We've met um, important monks like Alcuin, really important astronomers um, like John Field, the first uh, sort of a proto-cove Copernican here in uh, in Britain. Um, lots of really mega important um, astronomers in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, and now we're going to bring it right up to date, well, it's as far up to date as we can do. It's been an incredible story. And the last person on the list, uh, it does just take us into the um, 21st century, is Sir Fred Hoyle. Uh, 1915 to 2001, so just carries us into the 21st century. He was born in Bingley in the West Riding of Yorkshire. His father worked in the wool trade in Bradford and served in World War I as a machine gunner. That's the father, not, not Fred. Uh, his mother studied music at the Royal College of Music in London. Fred Hoyle was educated at Bingley Grammar School and showed an incredible intellect from a young age. 
before going on to Emmanuel College where he read mathematics. During World War II, he worked for the Admiralty on radar research, which allowed him little time to undertake research into astronomy. Following World War II, Hoyle helped to show that all the elements from which our world is made from, um, carbon atoms to uranium atoms, have been cooked inside stars millions of years uh, um, ago from a basic fuel of hydrogen. These heavy elements were then blasted into space in massive explosions called supernova. That's when a star blows itself to pieces. These atoms will later form into planets and people. We are, we are part star. Um, we are stardust, in other words. Yet for all of his work, which was undertaken with the American physicist Willie Brown in the 1950s, there was little recognition. Brown would receive the Nobel Prize for Science while Hoyle did not. Why? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That doesn't make sense. If you've got two people working together on the same project, one gets a Nobel Science Prize and one doesn't, how does that work out? Well, he was a Yorkshireman. I'll be careful how I say this and put this, but he was a Yorkshireman. He was a typical Yorkshireman. He was blunt. Very blunt. Um, if he didn't like you, he told you to your face. If he didn't think you were right, he told you to your face. Now, of course, working down in places like Cambridge with lots of people perhaps from the home counties who perhaps weren't quite so used to this very blunt style of approach didn't make him many friends. Um, and it's that's one of the reasons why he probably didn't get it because he just upset so many people. And back in the 1990s, uh, I, I remember that I was when I was down at Cambridge um, at the Institute of Astronomy. I was talking to people down there who had been students of his, but when they when they were student astrophysicists, and, and I said to them, "You hear all these stories about Fred Hall, about him being really blunt and really gruff and really to the point." I said, "Is it really true?" And to a person, they went, "Yep." <laughs> if 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 he asked you to do some work, if he didn't do it, you're in trouble. If you did some work and it wasn't right, you're in trouble. If you didn't understand what he told you to do, you're in trouble. <laughs> you were sort of a bit of a loser. He, re he, he was. He, he just took no prisoners. He really didn't. He, he just took no prisoners at all. Um, now, today, we most people accept the universe began with the Big Bang Theory. Uh, but back in the 1950s, Opinion was split. Some astronomers thought everything started with a Big Bang, while others, including Fred Hoyle, supported the steady-state theory, which said that the universe had been in a constant expansion for eternity. And Fred Hoyle, typical to his nature, took a very dim view of anyone who disagreed with him. Now, the real crunch came in a radio um, 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 show in the 1950s. It was a debate. And it was on, now back in those days, there wasn't a Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, and that sort of stuff. Um, you had the third programme. Anyone was old enough to remember the third programme? That would be today equivalent to the Radio 3. Uh, the other main radio station at the time was the Light programme, which played light and popular music and would go on to become Radio 2. Anyway, so we're on the third programme, 
And uh, there's this debate between the people who have got one idea of how the universe like and you've got the other side. And uh, Fred Hoyle, he, he's going it live, of course, and Fred Hoyle then says something and he regrets it for the rest of his life. He said, these people who think um, that, um, uh, that the universe isn't, uh, hasn't always been here, they believe it started with some kind of big bang, are just totally wrong. And at one stroke... What Fred Hoyle did was he gave these people the strap line that they didn't have. Um, and I think he realised it the moment he'd said it. Um, and uh, it was the catchphrase. And, of course, it would go on and on and on. And now we accept the Big Bang as, as what, how the universe actually started. Uh, he was not a happy man. He really was not a happy man at all because everyone who would disagree with him. Uh, he'd now give them this sort of a strap line, this, uh, um, this catchphrase to use. And more importantly, when time goes by, he was wrong. Uh, and he, he didn't. That was he, he didn't do that very well at all. If he was wrong, it just didn't go down at all well. Um, in 1957, uh, he, he started to. He's still heavily involved in astronomy, but he went into his little creative writing period, and he started writing some science fiction books, including a novel called The Black. Cloud, which became a classic science fiction novel. Um, in 1958, he became the Plumian Professor of Astrophysics at Cambridge, a very, very prestigious um, position, which he held until 1972, when he actually resigned. His resignation was partly due to his blunt Yorkshire attitude. It wasn't sitting very well down at Cambridge. I mean, we all know, we all, uh, I'm a southerner living up here in the north of England. I've got used to Yorkshire people, but people who've never been around you know, a real old-fashioned Yorkshire person, uh, and they're just as blunt as blunt. They're not being nasty. There's nothing nasty in what they say. They're just telling you as it is. They're not buttering up. They're not smoothing out. They're just... Tell you as it is. Anyway, um, so so he resigned from from uh, from Cambridge um, in 1972. He also was knighted in 1972. Um, he, he left Cambridge and he moved back to the Lake. We actually moved to the Lake District, and he spent his time writing books, trekking across the moors, and visiting research research centres around the world. Then, sadly, in 1997, while hiking near his childhood home in Bingley, he fell down a ravine. Um, and was only found by rescuers about 12 hours later. He was in hospital for two months with pneumonia and kidney problems and a broken shoulder. After that, his health declined, and sadly, um, following a series of strokes, um, he died in Bournemouth in uh, 2001. Very sad ending for a really colourful character, and he really was a... a I I, I, I never met the guy, Um, but... um, People who did know him, they, they, they say, yeah, everything you read about him is absolutely sort of spot on. So uh, anyway, that was Fred Hall. And that's a nice way to finish off our look at astronomy in Yorkshire. Um, OK, let's have a little bit more music, shall we? Let's have um, The Love Affair with Rainbow Valley. OK, I think it's about time to have a little bit of a look at see what's happening at the sun recently. And um, earlier on, uh, well, just for the weekend, um, there was a, uh, a CME, a uh, coronal mass eruption um, on the sun, which was launched into space. Um, I don't think it was going to hit the Earth, um, but it, w- it was going to hit Venus and Mars. Uh, it will strike Venus on the 22nd. 
which was what Thursday, was about Thursday of last week. Um, and the, 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 the inference was uh, a small amount of Venus's upper atmosphere would be damaged by that, while the strike would hit Mars probably yesterday. Um, that could actually spark some more aurora down there. Um, so we'll certainly keep an eye on those and see what's happening there. Um, there's also been, um, on the 20th, there was an X-Class flare um, 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 on, on the sun. That, that produced a, a CME as well. And uh, radiation from the, uh, uh, from the flare ionised the top of the Earth's atmosphere. This caused a deep shortwave radio blackout over North America. Now, that actually is very, very common. Um, anyone who's a radio ham will know what I'm talking about here. Uh, that these these events are really very very common. It's 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 not say every day, but uh, you know I think you'll you'll be lucky to go through a week without getting one of these uh, um, the, these radio blackouts. Um, and um, it's uh, so that's the Earth, the Earth itself is not in the direct zone of this one, uh, and that was due to strike on the 22nd or the 23rd. If it did strike, then of course it would be down in the southern hemisphere where you'd see it, because obviously up here in the northern hemisphere it's summertime and um, it's you, you won't see it because it's not dark. Uh, just to remind you, with these um, the, these flares, um, we we sometimes um, look at these on the astronomy show if uh, if anything is you know it's it's if, if it's if it's an interesting one. But there are different sorts of flares. They're on the stone sort of scale, a bit like you've got the Richter scale for earthquakes. Um, we have a scale for uh, um, for flares. Uh, we have B, C, M, and X flares, uh, and then they're subdivided into from point one to point nine. Um, the um, the, the B-class fares, we don't need to worry too much about those at all. Um, the the C-class fares, again, they're pretty weak and they don't really know, we don't really affect them. M-class flares can cause brief radio blackouts at the poles and major, minor radiation storms that might endanger astronauts if they're up in, in the space station. As always, though, it's that letter X, which is the one which causes all the problems. Uh, these are flares that are, are really, really powerful. The most powerful flare on record was the Halloween flare of 2003 during the last solar maximum. It was so powerful, it actually overloaded the sensors measuring it. Um, although we go from um, 1 to 9, X1 to X9, the actual machine itself goes as far as X17, and it went shot off the scale. Um, so we have no idea how powerful it actually was. Um, but long-lasting radios, radiation storms, they can damage satellites and also they can give airline passengers flying near the poles small radiation doses as well. In fact, I believe um, air, air, um, um, airline crews have now been put into the category, same like as radiographers in hospitals where they are exposed or potentially exposed to high levels of, uh, of radiation. Um, so... You know the X flares also have the uh, um, the capability of damaging loads and loads of satellites, um, loads of infrastructure on Earth. Um, it knock out all of the IT and oh my work. You only begin to imagine uh, all all the sort of um, problems that you'd have if that was to happen. They've happened in the past. Um, there have been major flares. We had the two thousand and three. Um, but, but since then, the last twenty years, technology has gone absolutely incredible. Um, other major flares have occurred in 1922, 1858, uh, and, and it, it's not a matter of if we get one, it's a matter of 
when we get one because because we will sooner or later and oh my well there'll be all sorts of pandemonium then anyway talk about pandemonium i'm gonna do something which i rarely do on the radio show i'm i'm playing um the same record twice but by different people one's instrumental and one's a song uh the record is actually called dance on by the shadows it's a 1960s record, 62, maybe 63. Um, and then the Kathy Kirby version of Dance On, which I believe did very, very well in the Australian charts in 1963. So uh, it just gave me a chance to have a little breath of, uh, get a quick glass of water and uh, get ready for the last quarter of the show. So let's kick off with Dance On with The Shadows. Hey, how's that? Strike one for the astronomers, eh? Hey, am I a DJ or am I a DJ? No, I'm not a DJ, you're quite right. But anyway, it's, it's a bit of fun just to sort of do that, have the same tune, but in two different versions of it. Anyway, oh, comes, it's uh, 8.32 on uh, it's Monday evening. Um, Drystone Radio, 102.103.5 FM. You can hear us online, www.drystoneradio.com. We're on DAB Radio in the Bradford area, and there's also a Drystone Radio app you can download onto your phone. Uh, let's dive into the, uh, the astronomy anniversaries for the week. And we was mentioning, uh, let's just see where... Uh, no, no, let's just we mentioned um, uh, Edward Pickett uh, with our Corona Borealis and the fact that he was uh, one of the fathers of the variable star uh, uh, astronomers. And um, but he died um, on the 27th of June in the year 1825. Uh, absolutely incredible um, character. Um, and um, he he went with his um, father to live and work in France in the early days, and he came to back to Britain. Um, he discovered um, the Black Eye Galaxy, um, which is now known as Messier 64. It's one of the Messier objects. Um, he um, discovered a comet in York in uh, 1783. He discovered a variable star in York, um, Eta Aquila, in um, September 1784. A night to remember in York when Edward, when John Goodrich also discovered a variable star. When after Goodrich's death, um, Pickett moved down to the city of Bath, where he discovered two other variable stars. Then in the early 1800s, he went over to France to see some of his friends. There was a break in the war between England and uh, France, but guess what? The war started up again, and he was Englishman in France. He got caught, he got captured, placed under house arrest. He was there for four years. Um, he was petitioned by English scientists and French scientists, and eventually he was given a passport back home again by none other than the French government through Napoleon Bonaparte. Then he came back to England and carried on his his uh, his, his work there and uh, lived a re- re- yeah, real sort of long old uh, long old life and had loads and loads of interesting adventures. Did uh, Edward Pigott. Um on the 29th of June 1927, there's what's known as the Yorkshire Eclipse of the Sun, the Great Northern Eclipse. Um, that was an eclipse of the sun that was visible from um, North Wales across Lancashire, Yorkshire, across to the northeast off to Hartlepool. Um, it was visible for about 29 seconds uh, at 6.30 in the morning. So you have to put it nicely. But something like about oh, maybe 2 million people actually moved from the north and the south wing to go along this uh, this, this strip uh, where they were able to watch um, the eclipse. A lot of people missed it because um, it was the weather wasn't fantastic. The main centre was at a place called Giggleswick in North Yorkshire where they managed to get some photographs. 
Um, it was photographed from Southport, and they got some pictures from there, um, as various other places along the line of totality as well. Some people went up in aeroplanes um, to, to see the eclipse because, say, it was just so cloudy. People were on the beaches on Southport, um, and uh, there was um, masses of people in Liverpool um, looking out for it as well, and uh, it, was, it, it, it was incredible. Uh, the amount of people who actually uh, witnessed it. And uh, when you read the reports of the day and you just think it's just so different compared to today uh, with, um, with with how things are. You know, one of the reporters, I think it's from the Yorkshire Post, said that um, between um, Borough Bridge and Weatherby on the Great North Road, that's the 8-1 to us, um, a 12-mile stretch of road, in 40 minutes he counted 225 cars I tell you what, if you was going the A1 today, it would take you about, well, a minute to count 225 cars. He had to do 40 minutes before he could count them. Um, But loads of people travelled there, and it it was absolutely... If if you read about it, it's a fantastic um, event. Um, Let's have a look. What else can we... Oh, yes, June the 30th, 1908, the Tunguska event. That's when a... uh, a fairly large, um, probably a comet, um, impacted or airbursted above the Tunguska Forest in uh, northern Siberia. It destroyed about 80 million trees over a 800 square mile area of forest land. Um, the, as far as known, no one was killed because it was so sparsely populated at the time. The um with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um... The, the shockwave would go around the world twice uh, and about 400 miles from the airburst site was um, the Trans-Siberian Railway Line and a train travelling from Moscow to Vladivostok got hit by the, the shockwave and the engineer actually stopped the train because he thought the train had become derailed. It hadn't. It just got hit by the, uh, um, by, by, by the shockwave. Uh, absolutely incredible. you know. And, and uh, this is the sort of thing that, uh, people, that the scientists are looking out for uh, and just watching out for because again they've hit us in the past they will hit us again in the future and uh, that's something which uh does uh does sort of worry the experts so uh anyway we're, we're just that they monitor it and they look and they keep their eyes open and uh, well we just take our chances but we'll get thumped by something as big as dick tunguska um but um we, we're pretty sure it was about 50 meters across about half a football field um, and it produced about as much energy as a thousand Hiroshima bombs. And if you dropped it on, if one landed in, in, on London, everything within the M25 motorway would be um, destroyed. The shockwave um, up here in Yorkshire, the, the shockwave would blow over sheds, blow out all your windows in your house. The shockwave actually wouldn't stop until they got to northern Scotland. So, not good. Um, okay, let's have a look at um, some information coming from the Juno mission, which is at Jupiter at the moment. Uh, on the 1st of March, um, the, the Juno mission completed its 49th close flyby of the giant planet. 
Um, as the spacecraft flew low over the giant planet's cloud tops, its Juno cam instrument captured incredible images of high-altitude high haze forming above the cyclones in the area. Um, and uh, these these images are online. If you just go on to uh, Juno uh, at Jupiter um, and you can see some of these, these images, they are absolutely stonking beyond belief. Um, so, you know, Jupiter is the largest planet in the solar system. Um, these images were taken when Juno was about 5,000 miles above the cloud tops. Um, and um, it's got at least 95 moons, although Saturn's got many, many more moons. The four big moons are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, and they're all being studied intensely by um, Juno as well. So if you want to go online and find out more about that, do so, because there's just loads and loads of things uh, sort of going on there, and Juno is sending back so much information. It is absolutely incredible. Okay, let's have... Um, Tony Christie, shall we, with... No, sorry. Let's have Christie with um, San Bernardino. San Bernardino, even. Yeah, one last thing to mention with the astronomical anniversaries for this week was on July the 1st, 2004, the Cassini mission got to Saturn. Uh, and we all know the fantastic images that uh, the probe sent back. Also, there was a probe on it, um, the Huygens probe, which actually then down uh, was detached and then landed on the surface of Titan, uh, the largest moon. And when it landed, it sort of squelched when it got to the ground. And there are a few pictures that have been taken. Away. And uh, the Cassini mission, as you know, sent back incredible images of the um, upper cloud layers of um, Saturn, the incredible ring system of Saturn. And, uh, of course, um, images of Titan, plus also the moon Enceladus, which appears to have water uh, or ice um, being um, pushed out from within it as well. So... Uh, but all that sort of detailed information is all online. If you want more d d data, there is loads of it there. Now, a little bit of an advance warning before we go on to um, the um, Astronomical Societies for the North of England for uh, for this week with our meetings, is that for the next two weeks, you'll have a recorded show of the Astronomy Show um, because uh, yours truly, uh, I won't be here. Uh, not only will I not be here at Starbase 37, I won't be in the country either. Um, for, for, for reasons that I, I never quite fully understand, but some people seem to have some idea, I've got a vague idea of what I'm talking about, I, I get asked to go on uh, cruise ships all around the world to do uh, talks on astronomy, and uh, I shall be um, kicking off on um, later on this week. And uh, we're going up to Iceland and Greenland, um, and we're doing all sorts of astronomy talks up there, and uh, that's really looking forward to that. However, it has been tempered a little bit. I've actually I didn't realise this, but um, in Greenland they have loads of midges, just like you have loads of midges in Scotland. They have loads of midges in uh, uh, in Greenland as well. I wasn't aware of that, and, and I have to say, uh, I'm one of these people that midge. I, I can just go for a stroll. Um, but by, by, by the canal somewhere, and uh, midges they just zero in. There can be a dozen people. They they leave everybody else alone. They they end up coming to me. I look like Mr. Blobby, and I have no idea what's going to happen when I come back on live uh, um, in, in three weeks' time. So the show on Monday, July third, Monday, July tenth are recorded shows, and I'll be back live on Monday, July seventeenth. I hope I've done the recordings right because I, I I actually do say when I when I do my recordings I I do tend to find that um, um, recordings are actually probably in some ways more stressful than doing a live show because uh, you know, uh, well it just take it from me <laughs> it's, it's it's great fun but uh, 
my word, it, it is, it's a bit, uh, ah, right, okay, um, anyway, um, so yeah, that's just to sort of just to forewarn you um, that say for the next two Mondays um, you'll be hearing recording shows, which means of course there's uh, not going to be any news features. And what I've done um, because I, because I, the news I tend to give is the news which comes out um, during the course of this week, um, so it's as up to date as I can actually make it. Um, so what I'm going to do for the next um, two Mondays, we'll have the regular features like the A to Z of constellations, the astronomical anniversaries and what the astronomical societies are up to during those weeks. But I, I thought it'd be good fun to have a good look at the solar system. So um, next Monday, we're having a look at the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, the Earth and Mars. And then the week after, we'll have a look at the outer planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. Just give a good chance to sort of uh, um, spend a fair bit of time just having a really close look at the planets what they are, the mythology behind the, you know, what gods they're named after, um, their sort of involvement in science fiction and discoveries, they made, all those sorts of things. So if you're interested in that, then it'll be worth your while just tuning in uh, on the next two Mondays. But so I will be back live here um, at Starbase 37 on Monday, July the 17th. Uh, now, um, on the world number two son, who is, um, well, he certainly was uh, linked in uh, on the, the com link uh, earlier on. Um, he, he sort of chivered me on to get these uh, these astronomy jokes, and here comes another one. Uh, how did the lamb get to the moon? I don't know. How did the lamb get to the moon? In a spaceship. Yeah, I'm not quite so sure that um, some of these are as good as they're supposed to be, but uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so, so that's uh, uh, in, in, in a sheep. Hmm. Um, okay, um, let's um, I'll tell you, let's get one more bit of music in, and then we can uh, we can wind the show up with the uh, um, the astronomical societies in the north of England, and perhaps another news story if there's enough chance for it. Let's go off with um, last record this evening will be um, it's going to be uh, oh China in your hand with Tapao. Yeah, but I think we've got time to do the uh, astronomical um, societies for this uh, for this this week. One of the things I always do keep um, uh, banging on about it's very very important. If you are interested in space and astronomy, then go online and see if there's an astronomical society in your town. If there is, um, join it because um, a you'll make lots of friends, but b if you are interested in getting telescope binoculars. Cameras, lenses, books, find your way around night sky. Well, they're your local group of experts. Um, so they're the people to sort of turn to. And again, I do keep saying this, but and it is actually very, very true. That if you look um, at the um, the various uh, magazines that are out, there are so many telescopes on sale. And some of them are not cheap. Uh, and it's it's very, very easy to, to buy something that you think is what you want. Um, and it isn't. Uh, and that you end up with saying that it's not really what you want and and we we see it you know people like myself we see so many um adverts for virtually brand new telescope at a knockdown price because someone's bought it and it's not really what they want you know if you talk to your local group of experts um uh, they can say to you well look one of our people have actually got one of those telescopes. Look at it, have a look at it, see what you reckon, see if it works for you. Or they may say, yes, that is one, go for it. Or they might say, actually, you can get a much better deal with this sort of piece of equipment. So it is really worthwhile just getting that piece of advice. Um, now, if you're interested in space flight, you know, spacecraft rather than pure astronomy, I'd always suggest you go to uh, 
Go Space Watch. Uh, now, Michael Bryce um, runs the operations there. Um, and um, it's they have all sorts of features. They have meetings. They have um, lectures. And they have magazines and all sorts. Uh, but if you want to find it all about it, and say it's more for space flight rather than for astronomy. But a lot of people are interested in that. The website is Go Space Watch. That's one word. GoSpaceWatch.co.uk. On YouTube, if you're a hunter around, you can find the Space Oddities. We're always talking about space in one form another so that's the space oddities on um youtube now the astronomical societies let's have a look on um monday the 3rd of july now you'll be thinking that's next monday why are you doing this now well it's easy because if if i was trying to read this out next monday the meeting would be over and done with so although the meetings normally are for this week um if if it doesn't occur next monday uh then it gets into this this week's show so uh, monday july third bradford astronomical society uh a good mate of mine rod hine will be talking about it was a practical session so i'm i'm assuming it's just sort of things we're talking about how we use a telescope and uh, and the sort of things you need i know rod's very much into radio telescopes as well so if that's something which uh sort of a really sort of a picture interest that would be something well worth worthwhile going to now if you want details about not just that meeting but everything's going on at bradford the website is bradford astronomy that's one word bradfordastronomy.co.uk uh, a friend of mine, uh, Martin Witt, runs the Lime Tree Observatory up near Ripon. It's, there's a planetarium, there's observatory, there's a, um, places you can bring your telescope and set your telescope on concrete plinths to uh, observe the sky. It's very, very dark up there. It's, it's, it's out of the way a bit, but it's very, very dark up there. But it's for organised groups. So if you wanted to go, you need to contact Martin and have a chat with him, and I'm sure he'd be happy to make uh, an arrangement for you to go up there and meet him and do the stuff. If you want details about that, the the, obs, the website is Lime Tree Observatory. That's one word, LimetreeObservatory.com. Uh, whizzing across to the west coast to um, Merseyside to Liverpool Astronomical Society they meet every Wednesday at their Pex Hill Observatory and um, this time of year um, there'll be the sun uh, the moon if it's up in the sky um, and they in theory they meet from seven till nine but I, I know the, a lot of the folks there and it'll go on well past nine uh, you have a great time over there so if you're interested if you happen to be in that part of the world the website is liverpool as that's one word liverpoolas.org um, in the manchester area the manchester astronomical society meet each thursday uh, at the university of manchester um, and if you want details of what's happening there their website is manastro that's one word manastro.org in south yorkshire um where are we going on south yorkshire uh on the thursday of this week just getting me, me, me bearings right thursday the 29th um how can i focus my camera by John Leach. Uh, that's a really useful thing, David. How, how, how can I focus my camera? So again, it's a practical thing. There. This is the Mexborough and Swinton Astronomical Society. So if you want more details about what uh, they're up to, their website is msas.org.uk. And if you happen to be up in the northeast, the Sunderland Astronomical Society meet every uh, Thursday and Sunday at their observatory. And if you want details about what's going on there, their um, website is uh, Sunderland Astro. That's one word, Sunderland Astro dot com um now i'm just checking to see whether i've got i may just have enough time to do this is there weather on the moon uh the moon doesn't have a significant atmosphere like the earth it does not experience weather like wind or atmospheric temperature or rain or snow 
However, the moon does experience what we refer to as space weather. Space weather loosely refers to how the changing conditions throughout the solar system, like the variant solar wind, which is composed of charged particles from the sun and the meteorite streams, affect planetary surfaces and volatile cycles. So, at the moon, the solar wind and the meteoroids have direct access to the surface and they continuously alter the lunar soil. Um, so, at Earth, our atmosphere and magnetosphere largely protect us from space weather. However, in the uppermost regions of the Earth's atmosphere, it can be a problem for, um, for, for, for spacecraft and satellites. And so, is there weather on the Moon? Well, the Moon does not experience weather like Earth-related weather. However, it does experience space weather, and that will be very important to forecast as humans return to the Moon in the future. That's just about it for me for tonight. Don't forget Dave's coming on in just a couple of minutes' time, because I don't think the news will be uh, prattling on, so he'll be whizzing on after that. Um, so Dave's on between 9 and 11 with the Soul and Motown show. Uh, we are the Monday Evening Drystone Radio Dream Team. Uh, if uh, you keep him coming for a couple of hours, I'm pretty sure he'll keep you coming for a couple of hours with some pretty good um, um, Soul and Motown music. As for me, well, uh, the bags are being packed um, and uh, we're off later on this week to pick up our ship and we're going, as I say, um, to Iceland and Greenland. Um, so next week... Monday, July 3rd, a week after Monday, July 10th. Both of the shows are recorded. Um, next week, I'll be having a look at the inner planets, and the week after, we'll have a look at the outer planets. And I shall be back here live again at Starbase 37 on Monday, the 17th of July. As always, have a really, not just a great week, but a great sort of three weeks. Um, if you do get a chance to have a look at the sky, do so. If you want to get Venus, do it this week. After this week, it will just be too close to the sun. You won't see it. It's very, very low down in the southwest. And also keep your eyes open for the June booted, those meteors. Maybe tomorrow night you might see some around about midnight if you're lucky. And lastly, of course, don't forget the noctilucent clouds. They are around and about. Um, and if it's clear, again, about the midnight hour, uh, you might just be lucky enough to see them. All I can say now is have a fantastic time. Everyone keep safe, and uh, hopefully um, I'll have your company again on the 17th of July. Cheerio! With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.